As silly as this sounds, you would not show up to your football game wearing a soccer uniform for obvious reasons. There's nothing wrong with a soccer uniform. It's just not the appropriate attire for that particular game. Well, as a Christian, you and I have been issued a standard uniform and equipment that goes along with that uniform, and that's what we're going to talk about today on this episode of By the Verse. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of By the Verse. This is not only our season one finale, but it is also uh, the end of the book of Ephesians, okay? So I just want to take a moment and thank you for keeping up with me this whole time and working through this book with me. Don't forget to like and share this material wherever you are listening to it and make sure that you are subscribed so that you can get the alerts for our next season. Well, last week we walked through chapter five of the book of Ephesians. And so Paul, what he has done is he has applied some of the spiritual principles that he outlined in chapter four. Here, he takes them and he applies them to our relationships in the home. It's really a natural extension of his conversation about how brothers and sisters in Christ should deal with each other. Well, guess what? If you're a Christian and your spouse is a Christian, Well, your spouse is a brother or sister in Christ. If your children uh, know Jesus, if they've expressed faith in Jesus, well, they're not only your son or your daughter, they're also your brother or sister in Christ. If you're in the workplace and your boss or your uh, employees, some of them may be Christians, well, they are also your brother and sister in Christ. And so some of the same principles apply. And the basic principle of how we uh, interact with brothers and sisters in Christ is love and mutual submission. So he gave us the most fundamental relationships in society as examples, husbands and wives, parents and children, employer and employee. Now let's turn our attention to the final section of the book, and we're going to read starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all 
perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to acknowledge that evil is a real thing. It doesn't take a particularly spiritual person or a particularly religious person to acknowledge that in the world there seems to be wickedness. There seems to be evil uh, at work in the world. The difference is that Christians understand the reality of the situation and how it works and how we are to respond to the works of the devil. Now, I love movies. I love watching movies, especially when things blow up because I love a good action story. But unlike a lot of other people, I do not like watching movies more than one time. Other people watch movies over and over and they learn the lines and I often feel awkward and left out when my friends are having a good laugh over a movie line that they've brought into a conversation and I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. But the reason that I don't like to watch movies over and over again is because I've seen it already. You know, it's kind of an emotional journey I've already been on, and I don't want to take it again because I won't feel the same way. You know, the first time you see something, you don't know what's going to happen in the next scene unless it's a Hallmark movie, and then you know exactly what's going to happen, okay? Uh, But I like the mystery of it and, and not really knowing and having to stay on the edge of your seat to figure out how it's all going to come together, okay? But I wouldn't have that uh, if I knew exactly everything that was going to happen. Well, God's plan for humanity has already been revealed to us. We've seen a glimpse of the end, but he hasn't necessarily shown us each scene in the movie. Paul has already told us in chapter 1 that it was God's eternal plan to unite all things under Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That's uh, verse 10. But the problem is that when we look out into the world, we don't see everything united under him. Okay, Paul has told us also in chapter 1, verse 22, that God has placed all things under Christ's feet. And yet when we look out into the world, we don't see everything truly under uh, submission uh, to Christ. What Paul is really doing here is he's helping us understand that when God decrees that something is going to be a certain way, it's as if it has already happened. We understand that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. We understand that one day the enemy of God will be cast into the lake of fire and there will be total peace. There will be war no more. 
But until that happens, there's a certain way we have to live, a certain understanding that we have to have to make it through the scenes of the movie that we haven't seen yet. We don't know all the twists and turns to. The problem is, because God has not revealed all those scenes to us, we can get caught off guard because we don't know what's going to happen. But Paul does not want that to happen to us. He has told us how we are to walk in unity in chapter 4. He has told us to walk in mutual submission in chapter 5. And now he's going to show us what it is and what it means to walk in victory in chapter 6. Now, we're going to uh, get back to verse 10, all right? But, but let me emphasize here just a couple of things. Some people take spiritual warfare and conflict with the devil and demons too far, in my opinion. And notice that up to this point, spiritual warfare and the devil has not been a major subject of the book. It is only here at the end of the book that Paul finally dives into this to help us understand the conflict that we find ourselves in and how we are to respond to it. Now, to be fair, he has mentioned the devil and demonic powers all along. In chapter 1, verse 21, he's referred to rulers and authorities and power and dominion, which may be you know, a, a reference uh, to demonic power and forces and, and the structure that's there. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 2, he has referred to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is a reference to Satan. In chapter 3, verse 10, he has told us that through the church, the mystery of Christ has been made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And again, we said that that uh, includes a reference to demonic forces. And also in chapter 4, verse 27, he has said, do not give the devil an opportunity or do not give place to the devil. So it is true that evil has been somewhat present all along. It is not irrelevant. But the Christian life isn't spent fighting the devil every single day. Okay, every day we don't wake up and fight all these spiritual battles on and on and on and on and on and on and on. It's just a constant battle that seems to never end. It just changes scenes, okay? Evil and spiritual conflict uh, is real. It's a real thing, and we need to be prepared for it in the moments where we find ourselves in a sharper conflict uh, with evil, but we don't need to blow it out of proportion. We should also point out here uh, that nowhere else in Paul's writings does he give a discussion on spiritual warfare that is more robust than what he shows us here in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, there may be a reason for that. The backdrop of Paul's ministry in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 could be helpful here. In Acts chapter 19, verse 11, we're told that Paul worked special miracles there, including casting out demons from people and that evil spirits left them. We are told that seven sons of Sceva tried to imitate Paul and they got embarrassed by a demon. 
and in Acts chapter 19 that a lot of people confessed that they had been a part of sorcery and magic and they burned all their magic books and the value of those books was actually quite large. It also tells us that a riot broke out in Ephesus because people were getting saved and it was causing them not to buy the temple paraphernalia, which was big businesses. Uh, Gods and goddesses and magic artifacts were a big business in the city of Ephesus. And Paul was literally costing these these craftsmen money. So we see that some of the backdrop of Paul's ministry in Ephesus really was in direct confrontation with evil spirits and demonic power. So again, this is a real thing and we should not run from it or be afraid of it, but we should understand that the greater emphasis of this book is on God and what God has done and what he will do. So let's hop into verse 10, which I believe that Paul is going to show us here how to live the victorious life and what that looks like. So number one, I want to point out, if we're going to walk in victory, then we must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Many of you are familiar with the uh, apparel company called Under Armour. Okay, it is a company that makes uh, like sporting athletic uh, equipment. Well, the Christian has a sort of under armor. And that under armor for us is the strength of the Lord. It's what we put underneath the uniform. Now, the armor itself that we wear has strength. But if the person wearing it has no strength, then it's just an expensive costume. Being strong in the Lord carries with it the idea that we should strengthen ourselves in the Lord and that we should allow the Lord to strengthen us. When David and his men got back from a military campaign and found that their camp had been raided, their wives and children had been taken, it was such a big uproar that when David's men thought uh, about this, they, they wanted to kill him. But the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Some versions say he encouraged himself. Okay, now we sang this old song growing up, uh, I know I am a child of God. And sometimes you have to remind yourself whose child you are. Remind yourself, your God will not leave you or forsake you. And the word of your God cannot fail. That's what it is to encourage yourself in the Lord, strengthen yourself in God. But it's also God who strengthens you. That happens when we're honest, when we're humble before the Lord. Paul tells us that power is perfected. God's power is perfected in our weakness. When we are weak, then we are actually strong. The Christian under armor is the strength of the Lord because you're going to need that in the long, fierce battles that may come. Now, if you're going to walk in victory, then we must understand what Paul calls in uh, verse 11 of this chapter, the schemes of the devil. This refers to the tactics and strategies of our enemy. Now, devil just means accuser because he accuses God's people day and night before the throne of God. That's what we see in Revelations chapter 12, verse 7 through 11. 
Satan means adversary because he is the enemy of God. He is also called the tempter in Matthew 4, verse 3, and the murderer and liar in John 8, 44. He is compared to a lion in 1 Peter 5, 8, a serpent in Genesis 3, 1 and Revelations 12, 9, and an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 13 through 14. That's how he disguises himself as an angel of light, uh, as well as the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Now, that's why Paul has already told us in Ephesians 4, 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Here's how that works. If you give the devil just a little bitty toehold, well, he'll turn that into a foothold. And if he can gain a foothold, that's actually where your punches come from. You've got to plant your foot if you're going to uh, throw the ball the right way in football, okay? You have to plant your feet right. If the enemy can get a strong foothold, well, then he can take a stronghold. And that is where he will launch his attacks from. So that's why there are some conversations you need to shut down before they gain too much ground. Don't let people sow seeds of division in your own heart. Uh, let's start, they, they start small and then they morph into something big. Division is deadly. The enemy operates in darkness. If you have a secret part of your life that you can't talk about, that's exactly where the enemy will work. He will set up shop there and he will launch his attacks at you from that place. We are people of light. You know, one of the tactics of the enemy is called the pump fake. That's when someone acts like they're going to hit you, but they don't actually hit you. The goal of the pump fake is to get you to back down. That is a tactic of the enemy. Sometimes he will put things in your face to scare you and to get you to back down when in reality, that thing is never really going to hit you. It's just a tactic, okay? Now, I'm not saying at all that the devil doesn't have real power. Of course he does. Paul says, uh, that we do not wrestle in verse 12 against uh, flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, this, this is showing us that the devil has a kingdom. That kingdom does seem to have some organization to it. Uh, he has fallen angels. Um, he, ha- he himself is a fallen angel, and they have ability ability beyond our ability as humans. But there are some important things that we should note. Even though he may have powers, he is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. He is not omnipresent. That's why he works through demons and why he works through people. An attack might come to us through a person, but we are fighting against what's influencing that person. There are characteristics of the devil's kingdom that Paul highlights in verse 12. Rulers refers to uh, his authority, 
Now, when man sinned in the garden, he relinquished the authority that he had. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, we are not under the power of the evil one, but the world lies under the power of the evil one. What the devil does also comes from a spiritual realm. It's as if what happens in the spiritual has an effect on the natural. That's why when there is a problem, we can't just deal with the physical fruit. We must address the spiritual root. If we're going to walk in victory, then we must put on and take up the armor of God. Now, verses 14 through 20, it's actually one long sentence, basically one long idea, basically. And the two verbs in the sentence are, uh, they signify a continual uh, state, okay, a continual condition, which is translated put on. Okay, the other verb that is used in the the sentence is take up. So we are told that we are to put on the armor and we are told that we are to take up the armor. And there is a distinction between these two because to put on means to put it on and to never take it off. It's continual. It's what we always have on us as a believer. But to take up has the implication that at certain critical moments, as the situation calls for it, we are to use uh, this particular piece of the armor that we have been given. It's not that they're not with us all the time. It's just that we utilize them uh, at different points. Now, I heard a, a good illustration of this of a baseball player. The baseball player is always in uniform during the game. The baseball player never takes off his uniform, but he only takes up the bat when it's his turn to go to the plate. He only puts on his glove when it's his turn to go out into the outfield and play defense. So certain pieces of the equipment that he has, uh, he always has with him, and certain pieces he takes up as the situation calls for it. So the first three pieces of armor are, are those that represent our continual state. We should always be in them and have them. Uh, we are to never be found without these pieces intact. But the other three pieces of equipment, we are to take up as we need them. Now, some people say the evil day is every day. Okay, And some say that the evil day Paul is referring to here is the day when evil is more intense. I say, why choose? Okay, Because on some level, uh, every day uh, it has some evil things. Okay, But we do know that the battle gets sharper at some moments than at others. Okay, Which is why we never take off the first three and why we take up the final three. Now, Paul tells us that the goal of using our spiritual armor is that we would be able to stand. He uses this word three times here. We stand against the schemes of the devil in verse 11. We stand, we withstand the evil day in verse 13. And after we've done everything we can do 
we stand firm, also in verse 13. Now, to stand is a military term, which basically means to hold the line. A soldier in an army has been given an assignment and he is expected to discharge his duties. This may include protecting a critical point, but it may include advancing alongside other soldiers. In both cases, you have to hold the line. If you're tasked with protecting a critical location and the enemy is attacking that location, you have to hold the line. You have to hold your spot because if the enemy breaks through there, he can get through to other things, other important critical things. So you hold the line. But this is not just for protecting uh, one particular uh, point. When the kingdom is advancing in a particular area, you may be standing shoulder to shoulder with other believers who are advancing along with you, and you are expected to hold your spot in that line so the enemy can't break through and get behind uh, the, the other believers you are toe-to-toe with, Okay. So as Christians, we hold the line at home, we hold the line at church, we hold the line wherever we have been stationed by God. Now, our equipment that Paul outlines here, and and we're not going to go to this passage, but if you want to, you can go to Isaiah chapter 59, uh, particularly at verse 17, but really it starts a few verses before that. The reason Paul calls this the armor of God and not the armor of the Christian is because this literally is God's armor. And we see it in Isaiah 59, that this is the armor that God himself puts on, okay? So we're not gonna go there, but now God has issued us uh, this armor. So the belt of truth holds everything together. It is the integrity of a godly life based on God's word. That's what upholds the believer's life. It will even hold the sword of the Spirit. You cannot use the Word of God unless you live in accord with it. You cannot claim the promises and live in sin. That's why you always have this one on you. You put on the belt as you know and practice the truth. The breastplate of righteousness covers our vital organs. It had a front and a back piece. I think that's symbolic of the two kinds of righteousness in view. It gets its name uh, from the front part, okay? That's the part that people see. That's our acts of righteousness. But we need the righteousness of Christ that covers our back. It protects the parts maybe that people don't see and the parts that we can't protect, but that Christ has done it for us. Now, a Roman soldier's uh, shoe had spikes in them like cleats. Our spiritual shoes provide a sure footing because it is based on the gospel of Christ, which made peace between God and men. Standing on the gospel provides an unmatched level of spiritual stability. The word readiness also implies the willingness to advance the gospel. I am to always be ready to share the gospel that brings peace. I should always live in righteousness and be held together by truth and be made stable uh, by these, these gospel shoes, okay? But 
I need to take up a few things. I need to take up the shield of faith. And Paul encouraged his reader to uh, use uh, their living faith as a defense against the enemy's flaming arrows. This shield of trust in God can be used individually or corporately to extinguish temptation, accusations, and everything that is being hurled at the people of God. Satan is a tempter and accuser. When you've been hit with either one, it burns. And the accusations that sometimes we experience uh, may be true or may be false. Either way, they both sting, okay? But the shield of faith which is faith in the promises and character of God extinguishes that flaming dart. The helmet of salvation refers to protecting the believer's assurance of Christ from discouragement and doubt. It protects your mind. The enemy will try to mess with your mind. It's one of the things that he does. The enemy will try to get you to believe your past disqualifies you from service. He'll try to get you to believe that because you are presently not perfect, that you can't do what God has called you to do. That's when you remind yourself that you are saved and you are being saved, okay? He may try to get you to think that you can't make it, but that's when you remind yourself that you will be saved. That's the the biblical truth is that you were saved, you are saved, and you will be saved. Lastly, Paul identifies the believer's spiritual sword as the word of God. This can imply that the believer should know how to use God's word. And we use God's word by speaking it. We know it, we rehearse it, We speak it to ourselves. We speak it to others. We speak it to God in prayer. That's one of the ways you use it as a weapon is that you speak it to God in prayer. Uh, You keep it around yourself and remind yourself. And prayer really is where we do most of this spiritual battle. The reason Paul ends this section talking about prayer is because prayer is where the battle really is. Wearing our armor and praying is how we hold the line, whether that's at church or at home. So here's the takeaway for today. The Christian life is not passive. Everything from chapter 4 through Ephesians chapter 6 is active. While we don't run around looking for fights to fight, we have to be ready to fight when called upon. Are you in a continual state of readiness. If not, I encourage you to dig into this chapter even further so that you can take hold of your place on the line and hold the line as God sustains you where he stationed you. Well, that's it for this chapter, uh, and that is it for this book and for this season. Thank you so much for walking through this season with me. We're going to take several weeks off, and then we're going to pick it up with season two. So you need to make sure you are subscribed so you, so that you get all of the notifications when we're ready to release season two. Hey, God bless you, and thank you for joining me on By the Verse.